Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. from Quantlayer. Thanks for listening to our podcast. On this episode, I speak with Ben Francesco, software consultant and founder of Scopelift. This one is a lot of fun. Two things I really respect about Ben are his abilities to break down complex technical topics and also to be honest about what crypto and blockchain can offer us. He's at heart a technologist and his passion for and dedication to crypto is palpable. This conversation contains a bit of philosophy around Bitcoin and Ethereum, particularly around how polarized the two spaces have become. We get into Bitcoin and Ethereum's respective reasons for existing and how they can also work together, how developers can use these new digital primitives to build applications and business opportunities in the space. We also cover a bit of DeFi and how smart contracts enable Maker and DAI. Always enjoy talking to Ben and I hope you enjoyed this one. Hey everyone, you've got Vikram here from Quantlayer. I'm joined by Ben Francesco from Scopelift, a software consultancy based in Philly. Thanks for joining us today, Ben. Hey, Vikram. Uh, good to chat again. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah. One thing I, I think, Ben, that you do really well is explain these complicated technical topics and often convoluted crypto technical topics in your weekly newsletter. And we'll link to that stuff in the show notes. But, Great. you know, since the last time we spoke, it was been about a year ago, uh, kind of like the heady days of ICOs when they started to die down. A lot of things have changed. You know, ICOs have obviously calmed down. There's been more progress on second layers of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of progress on this kind of DeFi, decentralized finance movement. I think is what DeFi stands for, right? Yep. Decentralized finance. Yep. Yep. In Ethereum, we've been hearing a lot about interop between chains. So it's been a very active year from a development perspective, even though prices might not necessarily reflect that, which I think is totally fine. So excited to talk about that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to chat about all that. I agree. A lot has changed in certain ways. Certain things haven't changed as much as you might have expected. Yeah. <laughs> you hit on one of the things that I think has been one of the most interesting kind of things to come up, which is decentralized finance or DeFi. I think the last time that we talked, we talked a lot about smart contracts and, and why I thought those were important. And I think at the time, you know, you were fairly asking me, like, what are some some interesting use cases out there? And, and if I'm remembering correctly, like maybe the, the most interesting thing that I could point to at the time was Augur, mm -hmm. the prediction market. And I can't remember if Augur had launched or was about to launch when we talked. Um, but regardless, it was maybe like the best thing that you could point to that wasn't just like an ICO, a token that was as an interesting use of smart contracts on Ethereum. And now, you know, of course, we have a lot of interesting things going on with DeFi, uh, Maker and the DAI stablecoin, you know, decentralized dollar peg DAI stablecoin, a whole bunch of decentralized lending primitives and, and other things going on as well, which I think is interesting that even like about a year, year and a half ago, whenever we last talked, that wasn't like on anyone's radar. And yet yep. here it is. And we see how, how big it's gotten with um, hundreds of millions of dollars locked in these smart contracts at this yep. point mm -hmm. uh, in such a short period of time. So it, it is amazing how fast the ecosystem changes. But I guess that's what happens when you have a permissionless platform. You know, things bubble up and good ideas succeed and, and bad ones don't. Right. That's funny that you bring up Augur because that really was a, uh, outside of ICOs, like you said, that was one of the main talking points around Ethereum at the time. So there was Augur and then the platform launched 
Uh-huh. And then I think a like a company called Vale wrote a better UX on top of it because yeah. um, I think there were concerns around like how easy Augur was to use at the time because it was quite difficult. Like you had, if you wanted to write a contract, you had to do all kinds of stuff and Vale made it a lot easier. Yep. But then Vale ended up shutting down. So the thing with like these prediction markets, people who aren't familiar with Augur, it was basically a way to write contracts in for different kinds of predictions you could make. So in the way that there was a centralized platform called Intrade. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah, um, I've heard of it before. It, it's it's just a it's a prediction market, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's UX was actually really nice. There was nothing decentralized about it. it. Had nothing to do with smart contracts or anything. You know, you would right. go. You, they would be the ones writing, taking the risk on, and writing the contracts, and then you could bet on like elections, sport teams winning, and things like that. Right. Um, so Augur was trying to do that on a decentralized fashion. Uh, prediction markets are super interesting from a philosophical and technical perspective, but for whatever reason, they kind of just, they're really niche So in-trade was very popular in like the finance community, but it never really spread. You would think like something like that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't want to bet, would want to bet on these kind of things, but didn't really spread beyond like finance and tech. So yeah, it's interesting. And that was something I was going to mention. Like Augur, I think has you know, it, it still exists and it's still functioning and there are a lot of liquid markets out there and, you know, people are using it. Um, but I, I think most people would agree that it hasn't kind of grown and succeeded to the extent that uh, people maybe thought that it would or that its creators uh, hoped that it would by this point. Um, and there's a bunch of factors that could go into that. But one of them is is the possibility that people just don't actually care that much about prediction markets. Um, yep. They'd rather just play the lottery or a slot machine if they want to gamble. Right. And that, you know, all the kind of wonkiness that goes into having to gain specific knowledge to like bet on an election or something like that isn't something that the average you know person is is particularly interested in. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there might be. There's definitely that. And also just ease of platform. Like if it was built into Twitter, I think people mm-hmm. might use it like uh, so you could bet on like the I'm not saying I would want to do this, but if you wanted to bet on like the British elections, uh, if you wanted to bet on what's going on with Brexit, you want to bet on the American election coming up next year, stuff like that. Like if you made it easy, these markets kind of pick up during those times. So yes, yeah. if you made it easy to do that, I guess. That would be interesting, like a poll or something like that on top of Twitter. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how Augur does in the election season where those kinds of uh, use cases are more... Um, yeah, they're in your face. You know? Right, exactly, in the public yeah. consciousness, so to speak. And But I, I, you know, regardless of... I think that it's for sure that the ceiling on prediction markets is bigger than what Augur has right now, right? Yep. And so I think that has a lot to do with adoption and UX and all these other things that we've talked about before. You brought up kind of Maker and DeFi. I would love to talk about uh, that whole part of the market a little more because I'm really not that familiar with. I very high level. I'm I know kind of know what's happening, but I'm not super close to it. Mm-hmm. And I definitely want to learn more about this kind of DeFi movement. I see charts like oh ETH being locked up, and it's 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 up and to the right. So I would love to understand it. Yeah. So, I mean, I am not like you have the, you have a finance background, Vikram. So a lot of these things from the financial uh, perspective, you probably would understand a lot better. I'm fascinated from them from the technical perspective and from the way that they demonstrate what's possible with smart contracts. In a lot of cases, I think what's happening with DeFi is you see traditional uh, things that are pretty common in the traditional financial world that, you know, have even been around for, for many, many years are being kind of ported over and implemented in trust minimized or semi decentralized way on Ethereum. So Maker in particular is, I think, an example of that. It's really a very um, 
a very simple concept, which is just taking out a loan against an asset that you escrow as collateral. So in the case of Maker, the asset that you uh, escrow is Ether. And the thing that you take your loan out in is this decentralized stablecoin called DAI. Um, and, you know, it's pegged to the dollar. So one die is supposed to always equal one dollar. And the way that it does that is by maintaining this ratio of collateral ether as collateral to the minted ERC-20 tokens that die that, that uh, you get when you take out one of these loans. Right. Yep. And so that ecosystem now has been functioning for quite some time, I think coming up on two years, if it hasn't already reached two years. And so the peg has held through a, you know, a very, very large drawdown, like a 90 plus percent drawdown in the price of, of Ether. It actually started to lose its peg a little, interestingly enough, as the price of Ether went back up. And another interesting aspect of Maker is that it is somewhat of a decentralized autonomous organization. So a DAO. In particular, the stakeholders, uh, people who own another token, so the maker token, get to vote in setting certain parameters within the system. And one of them is the interest rate that you're charged for your loans on your collateralized uh, Ether. So as it started to lose its peg, die, the people who are stakeholders and own this maker token are incentivized by the way the system is set up to, in this case, raise the stability fee. In other words, raise the interest rate that is charged to cause die to be burned. So the, the expectation is if the interest rate goes up, people are going to close out their loan positions because it's too high for them. And so there'll be less die in circulation, which mm-hmm. pushes the price back up to a dollar. Because in this case, the peg had dropped a little bit below a dollar, was trading as low as I think 95 cents at some point. So it still has seen some volatility around that peg, but for the most part, it's held, which is pretty fascinating when you think that this whole thing is just being done by smart contracts and then kind of uh, the parameters are being set by this uh, decentralized group of individuals who, who are stakeholders with this token. Got it. And so just so I understand, you have to hold the MKR token in order to set the interest rate? Yeah. So to participate in the votes uh, to set the system parameters, the most important of which is the interest rate, you have to own the maker token. And the reason that you would, as an owner of the maker token, want to do that is because without getting too far into the weeds, the maker token kind of serves as like a backstop if the peg is lost to such a large degree that there's no longer sufficient collateral. So maker tokens will be minted in order to make up for the missing collateral, which would dilute your ownership and therefore the value that you hold in your maker token. So as a holder of maker, you don't ever want the collateral to get so low such that maker tokens would be minted as a backstop. And so in theory, it incentivizes you to make the right decision to to keep that peg. Now, of course, I'm, I'm glossing over a lot of, of details here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the details are, you know, have to do with these kind of uh, financial instruments that, again, you would probably have a better sense of. I think you would find it fascinating if you dug into their white paper. There were aspects of that that went a little bit over my head. But yeah, it's a pretty overall, like, again, there are rough edges and things here and there, but like, it's pretty amazing that this system has worked as well as it has for as long as it has. And again, you now have hundreds of millions of Ether locked as collateral. And I think about 75 or 80 million die in circulation at the mm-hmm. time um, that we're speaking right now. So it's, it. uh, it's pretty interesting. And do you have a sense on what people are using uh, die for? Like, can you spend it? I guess, how could you spend it? And, and yeah, that? that's a great question. So I think 
I think it's there's there's kind of two questions there. One is like the people who are taking out these loans against their ether, what are they doing with Dai and why are they doing that? And then the second question is what is the rest of the ecosystem using Dai for now that it exists and we have this decentralized stablecoin? So I think uh, the people who are taking out the loans, it's not 100% clear, but I think a lot of them are frankly, ETH whales, so people who own a lot of Ether, either because mm-hmm. they mined it early or got in on the crowd sale or whatever it may be, they own a lot of Ether and they want to get some liquidity on that Ether. And they may also want to long Ether. So they may be using a loan on their Ether to get DAI and using that DAI to buy more ETH as a way to kind of leverage up their exposure to ETH because they expect the price to appreciate over time. But then in terms of the ecosystem, so everyone else, you don't have to have a CDP in order to have the DAI stablecoin, you can receive it just like any other ERC-20 token. And so within the Ethereum, the very small nascent Ethereum economy, DAI has really become like, I would say the, the most frequently used currency to kind of uh, pay for things and exchange things. So, you know, I do consulting work and I've done a couple small projects in the Ethereum ecosystem. And on a couple of those, I've been paid in DAI. So, you know, it's just like you charge your hourly rate, you send a, an invoice, everything says dollars, but then the payment comes across as a transfer of DAI on the Ethereum mainnet to my address. And I can take that DAI and I can cash it out for dollars at Coinbase at any time, or I could use it within the rest of the Ethereum ecosystem to do things like for example, uh, open up a Gitcoin grant. So uh, it's very common on Gitcoin now to pay for bounties using DAI because it has that stability, right? If you if you have something and you want to pay someone $100 for it and you just set the bounty for 100 DAI, right? You don't have to convert the price of ETH and worry about what's going to happen over the next month. You know, as the price of ETH uh, swings, maybe that bounty that you intended to pay someone $100 becomes only worth $50 or goes up to being $200. Well, that's kind of like taken out of uh, the equation, but it's still totally decentralized, just an ERC-20, and you can use it in the ecosystem the way that you can use anything else. So I see a lot of that, an increasing amount of that, in fact. You know, uh, I just went to, so you opened up a repo on GitHub called UseDai. It's um, yeah. uh, github.com slash appbendy slash UseDai. We'll link to it in the show notes. And I'm actually really surprised. I literally just opened it up while we were talking and looking at all the categories of basically what I'm looking, actually, you're, you're probably, you could probably describe this best. Yeah. And so I actually have a redirect on used. You can just go to usedai.org and that will redirect you to, to where the repo is. Oh, great. Um, it's kind of like, it's just a GitHub list so that anybody can open up a pull request. And it's just kind of my attempt to curate a list of places within the ecosystem where you can use Dai to kind of exchange in exchange for goods and services, basically. And I would like it to grow even bigger. I think there's maybe about 50 things on the list right now. But, you know, it includes things like freelancers and consultancies who are willing to accept Dai as payment. It includes things like the uh, centralized lending protocols that allow you to earn interest on your DAI as you're holding it. It includes things like vendors, e-commerce vendors that accept DAI as payment and will literally ship you a product if you and you can pay them with DAI. So I think it's interesting because it's it's this kind of it has a lot of the benefits of crypto because it's it's decentralized, it's censorship resistant, and yet at the same time it it gains that stability because it has this collateral in the form of ether backing it up, right? This over collateralization for these loans, and so it enables you to kind of use Dai as your medium of exchange in the crypto ecosystem in a native way. And to me, that's just very exciting. I think that that's something that we haven't really been able to do. Primarily, you know, crypto assets have been used as you know speculative uh, investments more than mm-hmm. anything else. And a couple kind of uh, 
questions around usage. So for you, so you have accepted DAI for projects in the past. One, do you charge a different rate based on DAI on any concerns around like volatility? And then also, how do you get it back to uh, dollars? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't. Uh, maybe okay. I should. Maybe I'm being a little naive. Um, I, <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm, I'm taking on, I mean, certainly I'm taking on some risk by doing that. But then in terms of how you convert it to dollars, Coinbase has DAI now. And so you can buy and sell DAI on oh, Coinbase uh, very easily. And uh, it's a pretty simple process to uh, to do that. And, and a number of other exchanges do as well if you're not using Coinbase. So uh, that part has gotten significantly easier. There are also just places within the ecosystem where you can u- utilize it. Another example would be Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange. And they have big liquidity pools around DAI, ETH, and other uh, pairs between DAI and other uh, ERC-20 tokens. So if, for example, you wanted to take a little bit of the money you were paid and invest it back in ETH, you could very easily, in a decentralized fashion, without ever leaving the network, use something like Uniswap to do that. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Gotcha. So that, that's, that's really interesting. And from a technical perspective, would love to understand, I know this is a topic we were talking about earlier, about Bitcoin and Ethereum and kind of how there's a lot of infighting going on right now, especially on Twitter and whatnot. Uh-huh. I'd love to get your thoughts. I would love to get your thoughts around that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, it's, uh, there's just a lot of polarization in the ecosystem right now, I feel like. Um, and maybe that's just like a sign of the times in general. Uh, every, everything seems to be getting more and more polarized in the world. Maybe that's just on Twitter and not actually in the world. I'm not sure um, because Twitter, I think, brings out the worst in people to some extent, although I also love it as a, a platform to learn and uh, be exposed to lots of different ideas. So it's a mixed bag. But I, I think I've definitely noticed this trend where Bitcoin People who are interested in Bitcoin and people who are interested in Ethereum increasingly feel like they need to pick uh, pick sides, mm-hmm. and there seems to be like a tension between those two communities. And I just I I don't understand this. I think that both projects are super interesting. I think they're each making uh, interesting sets of trade offs that are different from each other and uh, allow room for each of the projects to flourish, and and maybe even that they can complement one another and help each other to succeed in a kind of symbiotic way. More than that, even if you think that one or the other has to win eventually, it's good that we have projects exploring different sets of trade-offs. And so, you know, I think both projects are super interesting. There's other projects in the space I find interesting as well, but Bitcoin and Ethereum would definitely be the top two. And I think I, I, I kind of consider it a little bit of a personal mission that I just want to normalize the idea again, that there's nothing, nothing strange at all about liking Bitcoin and Ethereum, about being bullish on both, about rooting for both and about wanting to build and, and use both of them. So, you know, just want to th- wanted to throw that out there for people um, who are maybe noticing that tension as well and feeling some pressure to pick sides. Uh, you don't have to. It's, it's totally uh, it's totally artificial. Yeah, I completely agree. And my take on this is that you know, there's particular groups on Twitter that are louder than others. Yeah. They get a lot more attention. Absolutely. They, they kind of have to keep getting that level of attention as well. So yeah. like, you know, if all your followers are hardcore die, you're kind of incentivized. I'm not saying you're doing this at all, but I'm saying you're, you're incentivized to kind of continue to tweet, you know, things about die. Uh, yep. Same thing goes on with Bitcoin and whatnot. It's kind of like religious a little bit. Like if you're very, uh, if different religious groups are kind of warring over each other and then you put money on top of that. So I think there's some stress that people feel that, oh, if Bitcoin might feel like threatened by Ethereum, Ethereum, you know, might feel, uh, I don't threaten the right word, but they might feel kind of like, oh, yeah. we're always in the shadows of Bitcoin. Right. Something that comes to mind, there was a, uh, a reporter that had tweeted out a question to like, oh, can I speak to the Ethereum 
can I speak to like the Ethereum CEO? There's a family here in, <laughs> in, in Virginia that needs help or something like that. Right. And, and someone responded and I, you know what he's asking? He probably doesn't understand exactly what's going on. He's just asking for general help. Right. But a lot of the responses he got were like, there's no such thing as a CEO of Ethereum. There's no such thing. I don't think that's what he's looking for. He's just looking for help help if you can help guide him and he, i think he apologized he's like hey sorry i'm not really familiar with the uh with the bitcoin community <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah. you know all the uh, ethereum people got really upset by that so on one hand you have uh the stress that there's this like upstart nipping at your heels on the other hand you're feel like you're kind of like second to uh big brother but to your point about like how they can work together like what are some kind of concrete examples around that yeah, sure. So I'd love to dive into that. I just want to comment a little bit on, on the things that you were just saying, because I think it's so fascinating. I think another reason that we see so much polarization and tribalism around these issues is because the reality of these issues is that they're like very nuanced and complicated and there's no easy answers, right? Um, sometimes the answer is just that we don't know and that we'll only know as things play out. Um, sometimes the answers require like a deep technical understanding of some details about the trade-offs that are being made between the two systems. And I think as you know, as human beings, like it can be just exhausting, like mentally exhausting to go through the effort of understanding all the different nuance about these, these issues and these topics. Right. Yep. Um, and so I think that there's a tendency to want to just believe that there are simple answers and to just embrace simple answers almost as a way of like a, like a cognitive self-defense mechanism to prevent just mental exhaustion of the effort that it takes to really understand these things at yeah. a deep level. And I get that, right? Like, but I think it's a temptation that, you know, we should be careful uh, to give into, right? And it is okay to say that we just don't know sometimes. And it is okay to say, I don't understand enough about this yet to have a judgment on it. And, you know, you just, just be comfortable living in this space where we can at best, you know, just assign probabilities to things rather than knowing that there's a, a definite or a simple answer. And I think that is, that is difficult. I think it applies beyond just crypto communities. I think we see the same thing happening with politics as well. But uh, yeah, I think a lot about that as how sometimes this tribalism may just be kind of a, a way of dealing with a world that is hard to deal with. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so coming back to coming back to your question, though, about how I see kind of Bitcoin and Ethereum helping each other. Well, just one side note, like we're already kind of doing this and I'm probably going to do it throughout the rest of the podcast. But yep. I kind of when I talk about it, I sort of personify like Bitcoin and Ethereum as if they have like agency or a will. Um, and clearly they don't. Right. Like the process by which these networks evolves is a very like emergent bottom up thing that happens between in, in these communities with lots of different stakeholders, each with their own incentives and desires, pushing things in certain directions. And so, you know, you end up with kind of this emergent behavior that comes from all of that. But just as like a shorthand so that we can have. Have a, a coherent conversation, I'll kind of just give Ethereum and give Bitcoin a will and say they do this or they choose that, right? Yep. So with that out of the way, like what I would say is that I kind of look at it as what is the reason for being that each of these networks has? What is their raison d'etre to use the, the fancy term? And if that reason for being between the two networks is the same or there's in a lot of overlap between them, um, then it might be true that they are eventually going to have to clash and one of them will have to fail and one of them will have to succeed. But if it turns out that the reason for being between these two networks is different enough, 
that uh, they can coexist, then that might be uh, an outcome as well, right? They might be able to, to both serve different, uh, different needs uh, in the ecosystem. And so when I look at what the uh, reason for being is of each of the networks, you can start with Bitcoin. To me, it's like very obvious at this point that Bitcoin's reason for being is the Bitcoin network exists to enable the existence of Bitcoin, the asset, so BTC. And BTC is pretty clearly trying to be the best money that it can be. Um, so that means it wants to be the most decentralized and censorship resistant. It wants to allow people to use it even if they have access to very low powered computers, minimal bandwidth. They w- it wants to remain as most as trust minimized as possible and also to have a monetary policy that is very difficult to change, right? So the social contract around what it would take to, to change the mon- monetary policy is very, very strong mm-hmm. in Bitcoin and uh, unlikely to change. And of course, we know that it also has the hard cap. So it's, the, it's a very sound uh, hard money in that sense as well. And so Bitcoin's raison d'etre, so to speak, is to be the most decentralized, most censorship resistant, hardest, soundest money, digital money that there can be, this form of digital gold or a store of value, right? And when you look at the kind of activity in the Bitcoin ecosystem, everything is really centered around that, like the design decisions, the trade-offs, the technologies that are being developed, right? Like you mentioned Lightning earlier. Lightning is the pretty much the only like successful to this point, layer two solution uh, being built on Bitcoin. It's kind of stalled out a little bit, but it's still very early and it's really fascinating tech. And what is Lightning about? It's about payments, right? It's about sending BTC the asset, right? It's not trying to enable any other kind of additional use cases or support anything beyond that. It's just about sending Bitcoin in a performant, low fee way. And, you know, other things you could point to as well, right? Like Bitcoin has smart contracts, but those smart contracts are very simple. They are stateless. They're not Turing complete. Um, They're really just limited to basically placing encumbrances on who can spend what coins and when they can spend them, right? So you can do things like multi-sigs and time locks, but really you can't do much more than that. And so it's all about BTC, the asset, and just controlling how and who can spend those things. So Bitcoin is trying to be the best digital gold that it can be. And then Ethereum, what is its reason for being? I look at it and, you know, so some people, there's this term that was used very early on in the marketing of Ethereum that some people today like to kind of hate on. Mm -hmm. And that's the term world computer. Um, And I think the the reason people like to hate on that term world computer is because they're thinking of it as like their MacBook or like the Dell sitting on their desk or something like that, or maybe like as some kind of decentralized AWS, like a cloud server or something. But that's not what was intended by the phrase world computer. So as someone with a little bit of a computer science background, that framing actually resonated with me because I was thinking of it in terms of computer as an abstract academic kind of idea. And as an abstract idea, a computer, you know, in academic literature is something that has like storage. So in other words, some kind of memory that can be written to, and it has uh, some kind of general purpose processor that can perform arbitrary computations such that you can write programs that run on the processor and update the memory, right? Update the storage. And in that kind of academic sense, that's exactly what Ethereum is and continues to be. It's you can use a different term if it you know, avoids the confusion, maybe like a global state machine, right? And that is really what I see as Ethereum's reason for being. It's to enable the existence of this global state machine where you have this globally agreed upon and shared state. You have a set of arbitrary programs that are deployed on the network and are a part of the state, but also can be executed and can mutate and update the values of that state. And all of that is enforced with Nakamoto consensus and is decentralized and is auditable and is 
you know, all the properties that come along with being a crypto network are imbued upon that global state, but that global state uh, enables uh, kind of a bunch of new primitives for developers to build on, as you kind of touched on previously. And so that's kind of Ethereum's reason for being, and that is, in my opinion, sufficiently different from Bitcoin's, and they both kind of can fulfill those roles. And in fulfilling those roles, each of them has had to make trade-offs that makes it pretty much impossible for them to kind of take the turf of the other network. And so I, I don't see any reason why the two can't coexist for a very long time. Can we talk a little more about this idea of the global state machine? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think state machine, like we're both developers, we have some familiarity with it. But for non-technical people, have you, what's a good way to kind of explain or maybe give an analogy in terms of what, what it is? Yeah, um, one way to think of it, maybe this is a little simplistic, it's just off the top of my head here, but you can yep. kind of think of it as like, um, like maybe like a board game, for example, right? Like a board game has a state, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's like a set of rules that define how the game is played. And as you play the game, you're kind of executing those rules and you're updating the state of the board game. And so the state of the board game is defined by the pieces and the cards and whatever else is involved in that particular game and how they're arranged on the board. And then again, the execution of the rules and the, and the, the actions that the players choose to take throughout the game defines how that state is updated, right? And so Ethereum is really kind of like a giant board game in this sense, right? It, the network has a set of rules. Um, it has a set of state that is you know, defined as just data on the network. And then through interaction with smart contracts and interaction with the network, um, we as the players participate in these rules. We can't break the rules, but we can participate in the rules to update the state of, of that game, so to speak. But it's this giant global game with lots of arbitrary state and lots of players and anyone can participate in this kind of trust minimized way. And so you can start to imagine then all the different use cases that can be built on that. And like we were touching on earlier, we're starting to see those evolve in the forms of things like decentralized finance. But I think that's really just kind of the tip of the iceberg of, of what's possible. Yep. That's a good, uh, I think that's a good way to explain what the state machine is. Uh, I've also seen it in terms of, I mean, it is a board game, chess, of course, and you have a chess board like that's both sets of pieces are set up and that's state zero. The following state, according to the rules, is that you're allowed that the, you know, white has to go first and so on. So white makes the move of E4 and moves their pawn up uh, two places. So now that's the new state. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think that's a pretty good analogy to it. So going back between between Bitcoin and Ethereum, I think one of the kind of interesting projects that I have heard about recently is this uh, TBTC. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you, what does the T stand for? Is it? I think it's trustless, but I'm trustless. not 100% okay. sure on that. Okay. Because I've seen TBTC in the, as a test BTC. Obviously, that's not what it means here. I think the right. purpose of this project is to lock up your Ethereum and get Bitcoin back, or is it the other way around? Yeah, so so TBTC is interesting, and I, I'm happy to dive into a little bit about the mechanics of how that works, at least as far as I understand it. I've, I've read the white paper. I'm not directly associated with the project in any way, but it does kind of, it's a, it's a great segue into what I think is going beyond. So I just discussed how I think that each network has their, their own reason for being, and each network is making trade-offs in order to fulfill those reasons. And we can talk about what those trade-offs are or not, but the point is that like the trade-offs exist and it prevents either network from kind of killing the other, and there's room for each of them to exist. But I think there's another possibility, which is that beyond just room for each of them to exist, I think that they can be symbiotic to one another. In other words, that the trade-offs that each network is making are complementary 
And that by interacting with each other, they can actually grow the pie such that each network is more successful than it than it ever could have been by itself. And uh, TBTC is a great example of a project that could enable um, that kind of uh, symbiotic interaction between the two networks. So there's been talk about layer two kind of platforms on Bitcoin for a long time. But as we've talked about, the only one that has seen any kind of success so far has been the Lightning Network. Um, And part of the reason why that's the case is because, as we also touched on, Bitcoin smart contracts are very limited in what they can do. And so they kind of lack the expressivity that's needed to enable uh, layer two solutions that are more robust. What's interesting about TBTC is that it kind of leverages Ethereum's expressivity and the fact that Ethereum has this rich smart contract stateful platform that you can build on this global state machine. It leverages that and it leverages the fact that Ethereum as a network has its own native commodity money in Ether to kind of build a system that is trust minimized and yet enables a bridge between BTC and the other network, uh, which is Ethereum. So how does it work? Basically, there is a the the what's the best way to kind of summarize this? So when you with Bitcoin smart contracts, you can lock Bitcoin uh, in a multi-signature scheme such that some some threshold of participants need to sign in order to release uh, the Bitcoin uh, back to the Bitcoin network in order to spend the UTXO back on the Bitcoin network, right? So that is something that is you know it's called an M M of N multi-sig signature scheme. That's something that is pretty well understood and relatively straightforward to implement on the Bitcoin network. And so the way that this scheme works is you have a system where you incentivize uh, groups of people to form these multi-signature scheme, multi-signature smart contracts on Bitcoin and to lock an amount of their Bitcoin in that smart contract such that it then becomes available on the Ethereum network as an ERC-20 token called TBTC. But in order to do that, that same group of signers, the multi-sig signers, has to also collateralize their locked BTC with Ether locked in a smart contract on the Ethereum network, right? And they have to prove to the Ethereum network that they've locked um, their Bitcoin in this multi-sig scheme and collateralized their Ether on the Ethereum network. And of course, because it's a smart contract platform, the Ethereum side can validate these things. They could validate these proofs. And so once that's been done, now there's an incentive for this federated depositors, the people who make the Bitcoin available on the network, to be honest about whether or not they uh, can unlock that Bitcoin back on the Bitcoin network, right? Yep. And so it sets up a, a, stru- a set of incentives such that if that federation of, of people who make the deposit available, if they lie and they unlock their Bitcoin on the Bitcoin network, on the Ethereum network, then what will happen is their deposit, their Ether, which they placed, will be liquidated and used to buy back the TBTC on the network there in order to bring the system back into parity. And again, I'm I'm glossing over a lot of, of details, but this is kind of the general idea of how it would work. And it would produce a system that isn't perfectly trustless, but is far more trust minimized than any other kind of uh, scheme for bringing Bitcoin to another network than we've seen so far. And it also enables uh, more use case for Bitcoin too than simply hodling and 
waiting for the price to appreciate. Um, so it gives gives some use to it. I know there's kind of centralized services like BlockFi and stuff. You give them your Bitcoin, they'll pay you an interest rate. But with something like this, because it's trust minimized and because there are a number of other primitives in play, we'll probably see some cool applications being built that use TBTC. And I guess because TBTC is ERC-20, you, can, you could probably... Uh, Convert it to die and use it. You can probably buy Maker and be more involved in uh, in setting interest rates. I'm just making these up. I have no idea if they're a good idea or not. But you can just. It, my point is like, there's probably a lot of interesting stuff that you could end up doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is one of like the huge potentials. And, and what I mean when I say that the two networks have the possibility to the potential to help each other grow symbiotically, right? So if we have a trust minimized bridge into the Ethereum network for Bitcoin then Bitcoin holders, right, who are in it for the long term and waiting for the price to appreciate, then they have some outlet to still get some liquidity on their Bitcoin in the interim, right? And that can come in the form of, like you said, locking it up as collateral to take out a loan and die or in some other coin. It can come in the form of putting it into these peer-to-peer lending protocols and providing liquidity to those lending protocols in order to earn interest on it. There's a whole host of possibilities as this nascent DeFi ecosystem expands where having uh, Bitcoin available on the Ethereum network, even if it was only a small percentage of the total Bitcoin supply, like say 5% or 10% of Bitcoin supply became available in a trust-minimized way on Ethereum, that really unlocks a whole lot of potential for Bitcoin holders, especially large Bitcoin holders who might want to take some percentage of their holdings, uh, take on this additional risk by transferring it to Ethereum, but get some liquidity and some usage on it while they're waiting around for the price to appreciate, right? And that uh, having that huge influx of value in the form of Bitcoin on top of the Ethereum network only makes the Ethereum network itself more valuable because Ether is needed to pay for gas fees. Usage of the network increases demand for ETH in that way. Also, ETH is going to have to be used as collateral. It's going to be locked up in order to enable this Bitcoin to flow across into the network. And of course, ETH is already the best form of collateral in other systems like Maker, as we already discussed. And so there's an enormous amount of ETH locked in the DeFi ecosystem already. And that trend will only continue if more people are brought into that ecosystem because of Bitcoin's availability. And also, uh, Bitcoin at that stage is able to benefit from any kind of scalability and layer two solutions that Ethereum enables, right? Because it just will be an ERC-20. It can leverage those capabilities as well to make it easier to spend and to move quickly and in a low fee manner for people who are interested in doing that. So, And it gets those properties without having to make any kind of sacrifices on the Bitcoin network in terms of censorship resistance, in terms of decentralization uh, or anything else, right? So it's really yep. a, win- a win-win for everybody. And again, I, I think a huge opportunity for both ecosystems to grow together. I guess kind of along those lines, something you've talked about before is, uh, you know, how crypto has given devs this new kind of primitive, uh, mm-hmm. developer primitive. And every time that you, you see a new primitive, you see an explosion of creativity. I think common examples are like when GPS ended up in the phone, you had stuff like Uber and Lyft. Right. Who wouldn't exist without that? Yep. Uh, getting a camera and a phone, for example, Instagram would not exist. So, yep. What are some of these kind of examples in crypto that you're seeing right now? Yeah. So the three primitives that I talk about in the crypto world are digital scarcity, unstoppable code, and uh, immutable data storage. And of course, digital scarcity means, you know, you have assets that are digital assets, but, you know, there's a limited supply or some kind of controlled supply of those things. 
immutable or unstoppable code is just, it means smart contracts. In other words, code that once deployed to the network, not even the people who wrote the code and who developed the system can change the way that it's operated once it's deployed. And so that's a fundamentally new capability that we've gained. And then immutable data storage is just what it sounds like. It means that there's a place where you can put data. And once that data is there, it is uh, transparent and can't be removed. And of course, all three of these things come with trade-offs, right? Like each of them are expensive, right? Like data storage on the Ethereum network is, I don't know, maybe a million times or more, more expensive than like data storage on AWS or something like that. But that's not the point. The point is that it has these other properties that other computing systems cannot have and have never had before. And if those properties are valuable enough in the system that you're trying to build, um, then you have a reason to leverage them to build new kinds of things. Um, and so, you know, for me, like that's like the fundamental thing that excites me about crypto in general is that we have been given these new primitives and we now have this opportunity to see what we can build. And one of the things that we can build, right, is a form of decentralized, censorship-resistant, sound money like Bitcoin. Um, But I just see no reason to believe, as many Bitcoiners do, that now that we've invented these new things, right? Fundamentally, Satoshi Nakamoto invented a new set, this set of new primitives that we're only going to use them for that use case, right? That that we're going to invent digital scarcity and then only have one digitally scarce asset it's just, it just, I just, I don't find that a credible argument. And it just seems, it seems strange to me that people think that that's going to be the case. Um, same, the same with things like unstoppable code. Like we're going to invent a way to build systems where not even the creators of the systems can change the rules. And then the only thing that we're going to use that for is to place time locks and multi-sigs on Bitcoin. Like it just seems very unlikely. And I think <laughs> the, um, I think the things, the experimentation that we're seeing on Ethereum in the DeFi space is one example of the fact that there's already demand for these primitives and that people are going to come up with interesting and creative new uses for them. In a sense, like looking back retroactively, DeFi really should have been obvious, right? Like we're making we're making money here. So shouldn't it make sense that some of the first applications of these primitives that interact with money be uh, to handle financial use cases, right? <laughs> to yep. reproduce financial use cases. And it seems kind of obvious in retrospect, but it, but it honestly wasn't obvious. And you can tell that because of where people were putting money and attention and investment, right? Like in the 2017 ICO boom, in the way in projects that were invested in, I mean, people were throwing money into just really stupid ideas like decentralizing the streaming of music <laughs> when there were really powerful ideas like Maker or, or Uniswap that were getting almost no funding or relatively small amounts of funding compared to what other projects received. I think it's also interesting when you look back and you see like even people who are smart enough and know the space really well, like Consensus, Consensus wasn't really incubating any real uh, DeFi projects. Almost all of the important DeFi projects came from outside of, of consensus, which is, if, if listeners don't know, is this very large company and has a lot of, uh, has a lot of, uh, influence over the Ethereum ecosystem and is created by one of uh, the Ethereum co-founders. But they missed DeFi. And that's kind of the importance of permissionless systems that you have kind of like the best ideas kind of bubble up and emerge out of the the systems. And so we've seen that with DeFi. And I think we're going to eventually see it with a bunch of other things. And I guess with new primitives, we need developer tools to actually use those primitives. How does that whole landscape look right now, too? So like programming language frameworks, DevOps, CI tools, to the extent that they exist, don't exist, and so yeah, on. Yeah, ta- we talked about this last time. And I would say that in the interim, things have improved a lot, but there's still a long way to go. Um, so yep. there's still a lot of rough edges 
But I would say it's it's easier than ever today to get started with developing on these decentralized networks. And probably it's only going to get easier from here. And a lot of that growth is compounding growth. And so you can be surprised how fast things can move because you get some layer of tooling that then allows you to build 10 more tools on top of it that really improve the experience. The other thing that I've noticed here is that Ethereum really has a humongous lead in this particular metric. You know, Developer tooling on the Ethereum network, um, in my experience, while it still, again, has a lot left to desire, has really improved and is really just uh, far and away uh, superior to what other networks offer at this moment. Um, and it's it's hard to see how other networks catch up, but I also want to caution that I think it's very, very early in the space. And so it is entirely possible that some other system will eventually, um, will eventually catch up. But for the moment, Ethereum definitely has this lead in the tooling and also in the kind of developer mindshare. And then the other thing not to forget is that these systems, to the extent to which they, they interact with the financial uh, side of these networks, require liquidity on the network itself, right? So Maker is a great example of this. You couldn't really make Maker today on Tezos, for example, as an example of a competitor to Ethereum, because in order to lock the collateral, the amount of collateral that's locked to create the DAI stablecoin would be like 40 or 50% of the total Tezos supply. But it's only like two or three or four, I think it's actually less than 2% of the total Ethereum supply today, right? And so the liquidity, the market cap that Ethereum has, because you're dealing with these financial primitives, is in and of itself a kind of developer tool, so to speak, a developer, an advantage for developers um, that you don't have on other networks. And again, it's going to be hard for them to catch up, though it's certainly still possible. So yeah, I think I think I see the space evolving pretty fast. And I think I see Ethereum with a, with a clear lead. Yep. You know, it'll be interesting, too, to see how uh, kind of third-party services help here. So Heroku, for example, in the early and mid-2010s, they basically killed a lot of server costs for startups and also helped them to be able to get to MVP quickly yep. and do like regular deploys. So that just, I mean, the number of software companies that deployed for the first time on Heroku and then eventually moved to something like AWS or GCP is phenomenal. So I, I'm curious how that'll play out as well. Yeah, and I think that's actually a huge opportunity in the space to build developer tools and services that people could use. I think that uh, that's definitely something I'm keeping my eye on myself, like just looking for for opportunities to help the ecosystem grow by kind of filling a, a gap or a niche that isn't being met right now. Yep. And what is your experience? So you've been working on some uh, crypto and blockchain projects. What's your experience been like there on the consulting side? Yeah, it's been good. So one of the things that I talk a lot about as well is the funding ecosystem in the space. And this is something that I'm a little bit actually more pessimistic about. And part of that is, is my experience with the consulting. So I, I've, d- I've done a number of consulting projects for blockchain related projects, and I enjoy them. But I'm also very picky about the projects that I take. Um, I don't want to touch anything that kind of has the potential to be uh, scammy or, or kind of just doesn't seem to have the right set of incentives lined up. And the truth is that all of the best projects, the most needed and interesting projects are struggling to get funding. And so it makes them hard for them to hire uh, the best developers and to focus on things full time. Whereas a lot of junk in the space has received an enormous amount of funding because they sold hype and um 
And you'd be surprised, though the ICO you know, hype has certainly died down from where it was, there's still a lot of it going on, surprisingly. And there's still yep. a lot of junk being sold to investors who don't seem to know better. Um, and so that is kind of disappointing because in a lot of ways, I see the ecosystem kind of repeating some of the mistakes of the open source community and mistakes that it doesn't, that we didn't necessarily have to repeat this time around because again, we have like a native financial primitive available to us. So I think that is one of the challenges with consulting in the space is that if you want to stick to interesting and legitimate projects, um, it's hard to find the ones that are very well funded and you know willing to pay for senior level developer help and software engineering services. Yep. But at that said, one of the great things about being a consultant is that you do get exposed to all the entrepreneurs and people working in the space. So I get to see a lot of people who are excited and have all these really fascinating ideas that I unfortunately can't talk about. But suffice it to say, there's like a lot of smart people who are who are flooding into this space with really legitimately interesting ideas and who are doing what it takes to try to get those things built. And um, so that's exciting to see. And are you seeing any interest in private blockchains versus public blockchains? Is that something you've seen at all? So it's interesting. In my so I think that that is a trend that is kind of fading, but I it's not it hasn't disappeared. Partially here is my own bias because I, I <laughs> you know I just find that less interesting. Yep. And I look at kind of private blockchains as more of a, like a what would be called like a sustaining technology or an iterative technology as opposed to like a disruptive technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so public decentralized crypto networks are a disruptive technology, whereas a private blockchain is like something that you use to maybe like make a process thirty percent more efficient or something right. like that. Right. And and that's great. Like that's interesting. You know, but it's not it's not what draws me to this space isn't, you know, going in and making some bank process 30 percent faster is not why, like, I, I'm interested in crypto. Yeah. Um, so part of it is just my own bias. I think there there is some stuff going on. Um, Comcast, which is based here in Philly, and uh, we run a, I run a, I help run a meetup here in Philly for blockchain technology. One of the employees for Comcast uh, recently gave a really interesting uh, talk about how they're using internal, you know, it's a private blockchain internally to manage IoT devices. And this is a relatively early, but they're talking about it publicly now. And uh, it's fascinating, you know, and it like it is probably going to help Comcast processes and Comcast customers, uh, even though it'll be completely transparent to the customers and behind the scenes. But again, it's just not the thing that really excites me. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, a couple final things. For web developers and mobile developers who want to learn about crypto and blockchain development and working with these primitives, where would you kind of point them first? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, it's a, it's such a crazy ecosystem and there's so much going on. And the other thing is that it moves so fast. Yep. So we were talking about Twitter earlier and how it can be a little bit toxic, but it's also a great place to learn. And so this, yeah. this sounds ridiculous, but like just go online and like, you know, find the great developers and people who are building, not just on, on Twitter arguing, but on, on Twitter talking about the things that they're building and engaging in good faith discussions about the trade-offs that are involved in trying to create things in this space. Follow those people and you'll learn a ton and you'll come across a bunch of resources. Yep. Uh, in terms of particular resources, um, Andreas Antonopoulos, I hope I'm saying his name right, um, you know, he's just one of the best in the space in terms of uh, being an educator. He obviously, he wrote a book called Mastering Bitcoin. He also co-authored a book called Mastering Ethereum. And those are like great places to start, to start understanding, wrapping your head around how these systems work and what you can do with them. In the Ethereum ecosystem in particular, there's a guy I have a ton of respect for named Austin Griffith. He's out there. He um, He's just constantly trying interesting new 
experiments and kind of uh, experimenting a lot around the UX and onboarding portions of blockchain and dApps and whatever you, however you want to refer to them. So uh, he's a great person to follow on Twitter. He does uh, YouTube and writes a lot of uh, posts and stuff like that. And so he's a great resource to kind of start to follow in terms of, you know, what's possible and what kind of things you can build as just kind of like, he's like the, he's like a, a consummate example of like a builder. Like he just wants to like take these things and write a bunch of code and create something interesting with the tools that he's been given by these networks. And, and so you can watch him um, doing that. It's, it's a uh, kind of inspiring as well. There are a bunch of other great things out there, but there's also a lot of noise. And so I would kind of start with some of those and, and kind of go from there. And one final question. This is something we started asking people towards the end. So what are some technologies outside of blockchain and crypto that you're excited about and optimistic about? One of the things that's interesting is, you know, people that uh, know me well know that actually I'm generally a skeptic about new technologies. And I generally think that I generally think that things tend to get overhyped compared to what's possible, especially in the short term. And I also think that a lot of the things when people talk about a new technology, they often talk about use cases and it turns out down the road that other use cases are for the technology become much more important than the kind of obvious ones that people were guessing at in the beginning. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm generally a skeptic, which is why, which makes my fascination with crypto even more interesting because I'm, I'm <laughs> convinced that crypto is going to be super important, right? Yep. That said, I mean, there are some, some obvious ones like machine learning. I hesitate to even call it AI because I think that it's such a misnomer for what the technology is. Yep. And I think that that's a perfect example of how the technology itself may end up being used uh, in the important uses of the technology itself may be completely different from what people were expecting. Right. And, you know, people talk a lot about self-driving cars. I'm generally skeptic about self-driving cars. Yet we're now seeing the emergence of this deep fake trend, which is really interesting and a little disturbing where you can create audio and even video uh, that is extremely convincing of uh, people with, you know, commodity software tools and hardware that can be acquired very cheaply and utilized by almost anyone. And, you know, what happens when in a world where everyone can produce videos of anyone that look authentic and are, you know, indistinguishable from reality. And so, like, there are some aspects where that's good, in a sense, like for privacy and that kind of thing. Like, if everyone assumes everything is fake, then then maybe that actually protects you in a certain way. But then there are other aspects of that that are obviously kind of disturbing. So, you asked for optimistic. I'm not sure that's particularly <laughs> optimistic. But, uh, but I don't know. I, I think... You know, to be honest, like I think we haven't even fully digested the impact of uh, the Internet yet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know that sounds ridiculous, like 30 or 40 years in, but like we're still like trying to to reach an equilibrium with society in terms of the what what you know, what that means for business and political discourse and a whole bunch of other things from the Internet. So it's just it's hard for me to like think too much about how these other technologies come to interact with that. But certainly they're going to. Yep. Awesome. What do you need help with right now? How can people uh, get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, certainly I'm on Twitter, uh, probably more than I should be uh, per our previous uh, discussion. But yeah. uh, my handle there is Ben DeFrancesco, just my name. And uh, you can follow me there. I also write a uh, weekly newsletter uh, that covers... It kind of has a, it looks at usually like one, maybe two pieces of news that have been uh, circulating that week and kind of looks at them through a technical lens. Um, So it's like crypto news with a technical bent. It's usually about a thousand words, goes out every Sunday. I've been doing that for, uh, well, there's 62 issues now. So however long that is. Oh, wow. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. And so um, you can subscribe to that and check out previous issues by going to newsletter.buildblockchain.tech to check that out. And then 
you know, people can also feel free to reach out to me um, via email, um, which is available on that site as well. And uh, certainly if uh, folks are looking for consulting help in the crypto space or in just general software engineering, run a small consultancy, uh, you know, have a lot going on, but uh, always looking to talk to new potential clients and, and chat with people who might be interested. So feel free to reach out if you fit that bill as well. Awesome. Hey everyone, you've got Vikram here again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line at Vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M at Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. Thanks.